Amen. Let's just bow our heads together as we pray. Father, we ask that your Spirit would open our eyes to see the truth and soften our hearts to receive that truth, that your Spirit would fill us and change us more into the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord who loved us and gave himself for us. We ask these things for our joy in Jesus and for your glory in our lives. Amen. Our reading this morning is from the book of Malachi. We've been working our way through some of the minor prophets and latterly through the book of Malachi, the last of the minor prophets, the last of the Old Testament books. Our reading is found today in page 962 of your pew Bibles. It's reading from Malachi uh, chapter 3 and verse 6. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, six page 962. Malachi, chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your fathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord, yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out His requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty. But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Amen. I, the Lord, do not change. That's 
where we ended last time, and that's where we begin today. I, the Lord, do not change. We've been journeying our way through the book of Malachi, and we have noted time and time again the sorry state of the relationship between God and His covenant people. They are back in Judah. They, They have found Jerusalem, reclaimed the the city of God, rebuilt the wall, rebuilt the temple. This is what they have been looking forward to, longing for, working for, for such a long time. Now everything is in place. The people of God and the city of God with the temple of God. It's all there. But what is it all worth? if their relationship with God is not right. It's worth nothing. All of these things are only intended to facilitate, to help the relationship between God and His covenant people. And if all of these things are in place, if they're in Judah, in Jerusalem, with the wall, with the temple, if all of these things are in place, but the relationship with God is not right, then these things are worthless. And yet time and time again we find that their relationship with our God is so wrong. And they know it. Malachi itself is just a series of disputes between God and His people. They know that something is wrong, but they try and pin the blame. I've been talking about my Peter Pointer finger. They try and pin the blame. They try and point accusingly towards God. Time and time again, they claim that God has left them, but the reality is, the truth is, that it is them that have left their God. And it's not a new story. Verse 7, ever since the time of your ancestors or your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. God testifies that it's not the first time His people have let them down, and we can testify that it would not be the last time that God's people have let them down. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. God is unchanging, gracious, loving, compassionate, patient, covenant-keeping. And the people of Malachi's day were, in contrast, ungracious, unloving, unwilling to make good their covenant commitments with their God. And we can fall into the very same trap today. What ought to frighten us most is the thought that we may wander so far for so long that we no longer realize that something is wrong between us and God. We may no, no longer feel His absence. We learn very quickly when we come to church when we're supposed to stand, when we're supposed to sit, where we're supposed to go, what kind of things we're supposed to say. And that's all well and good, but it's dangerous as well because we may do all of these things and yet be so far from God that we think 
we're okay. We think that that's enough. We think all is well. Like Laodicea, you say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Better to know that something is wrong than to think you're fine when actually you're as good as dead spiritually. The Israelites of Malachi's day knew that something was wrong, and that in in itself was a good thing. It was good that they saw the symptoms of a bad relationship with God. The, The worst thing that God could have done would have been to have left them with a very comfortable life without Him. That's the worst thing that God could have done. He could have given them over to their sins. He could have walked away in exasperation and left them to their own devices. C.S. Lewis says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. Pain is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It was an act of mercy that their lives were not going well because then they saw that something was wrong between them and God. Does that mean when we suffer, it's always because we have done something wrong? Or our immediate family have done something wrong? Well, far from it. And we thought about that only a few weeks ago on Harvest Sunday. Uh, We looked through the Baptist Missionary Society video at the the plight of children from Thailand who had been born disabled and their community, their society uh, shunned them, their families rejected them because of this belief that they were born with a disability because they had done something wrong or their immediate family had done something wrong. But that's not Christianity. So we were encouraged to see the work of the Baptist Missionary Society. We were encouraged to see the work of Hope Home as in the name of Jesus, Christians took these children in and loved them and served them and told them of the love that God had for them. And we looked at the story of the, uh, the blind man. The disciples thought that uh, He was born blind because of his sin or because of the sin of his parents or his grandparents. Jesus said that was not the case. We could add Job and many others to that list. When we suffer, it's not always because we have sinned or because our immediate family have sinned. We don't believe in karma as Christians. But when things are going wrong in life, we are much more likely to see our need of God, to see life as it truly is, to see our weakness, to see our poverty, and to ask the question, how am I doing with God? Where is my relationship with Him? Has something somewhere gone wrong?
Sadly, in Malachi, God's people recognized that something was wrong, but they chose to point the finger at God. As far as they were concerned, the problem wasn't with them, the problem was with Him. How have you loved us, they said. Where is the God of justice? The Lord favors the wicked. God says, no, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not consumed. He is the God who is forever faithful to His people and to His promises. Malachi, I'm very aware, as we come, I don't know how many weeks we've been in the, the book now, but quite a few, I'm very aware that Malachi may not seem like the cheeriest of biblical books. Philippians is sometimes called the book of joy. That's a good nickname for a, a Bible book, isn't it? The book of joy. I'm fairly sure that no one has ever called Malachi the book of joy. Uh, there are a few verses that we love, kind of fridge magnet verses, um, you know, that either point forward to the coming of the Christ, that point forward to John the Baptist and to Jesus. That's good news, isn't it, contained within Malachi? We could say that this verse, another fridge magnet verse, I, the Lord, do not change. That's good news because God is good. It's good to know that He will never change. But the whole letter of Malachi, the whole book of Malachi is good news. Though it doesn't make for easy reading a lot of the time, it is good news. All of it, every page, every chapter is good news. It's good news that God does not sweep aside His covenant people in exasperation. He does not say, I've had enough of you. He does not kick them out and move on to another people. He doesn't treat them in the way that many of their men had treated their own wives, remember? They cast aside their own wives, the wives of their youth, whom they had made these profound and powerful uh, covenant commitments to in marriage. They just swept them aside and took other uh, worshippers of other gods to be their wives. God didn't treat them the way that they treated one another. And that's good news. It's good news that the Lord was willing to even enter into this debate with His people. Six times He puts up with these questions, these challenges, this finger-pointing. And He stays with it. He stays with them. He doesn't just move on. He treats them infinitely better than they treat one another and He treats them infinitely better than they have treated Him. That is good news. Malachi is good news because we often are all too like those people of God who will blame anything and anyone in order to not take responsibility for the things that are wrong in our own lives. But God is so patient and so gracious and so merciful towards His covenant people. And so He puts up with them. He goes further. He sends His messenger, Malachi, my messenger, sends His messenger 
to tell his people what's wrong, to tell them what they need to do to put things right. That in itself is an act of mercy, isn't it? And then he gives them these wonderful promises. Return to me, and I will return to you. That is good news. We ought to see the patience and the love and the mercy of God on every page of Malachi. He didn't treat them as disposable. He stuck with them, even though they didn't deserve it. They were unfaithful, ungrateful, unloving, but he stayed true to himself. The God of faithfulness, of love, and of mercy. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not consumed. Return to me, and I will return to you. I hope we're comforted by that. I think of Psalm 23. I know that I've said this quite a number of times, forgive me, but, uh, but I often think of Psalm, Psalm 23, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So the rod is the weapon that the shepherd uses when a wolf or something comes to attack his sheep. He uses the rod to defend those sheep by attacking the attacker, and David is comforted by that. Remember, often in his, his life as king, he is surrounded by enemies who would want to, to kill him. He is comforted that God promises his protection as the good shepherd. He is comforted by the thought of that, that rod which he will use to defend his sheep, to defend his people, but he is also comforted by the shepherd's staff David knows that he can be his own worst enemy at times. Remember the hymn that I quoted just a few minutes ago, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Sometimes we can be our own worst enemy. Sometimes it's not them out there somewhere, it's us. We wander away from God. And we should be comforted that God is a good shepherd who will take his shepherd's crook when we wander away into danger. Sheep are very... I mean, they're lovely and they're cute and everything, but they're quite stupid animals, so they wander away from the shepherd who protects them and who provides for them. And if it's a good shepherd, that shepherd will go to them and bring them back forcibly. I'm sure it's uncomfortable. I've never tried it, but I'm sure it's uncomfortable to have a kind of uh, walking stick stuck around your neck and to be pulled back in a direction that you're not wanting to head in. It's an uncomfortable thing, but it's good very good that God is willing to pull His people back when we wander off into danger. And the whole book of Malachi could be looked at as a shepherd's crook. His people have wandered off into danger, but He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't leave them. He pulls them back. I'm sure it's profoundly uncomfortable for God's people to hear what God has to say to them, but it's for their good. And it speaks of the goodness and the love and the mercy of God. I, the Lord, have not changed. Return to me, and I will return to you. 
So we have already seen in chapter 1 and chapter 2 what the people have offered to God. Remember, they've been taking to the temple uh, terrible offerings, the, the, the dregs that, that no one would accept, let alone God Himself. It's as if, you know, they, they're not sure what color of, of bin it's supposed to go in now, or they've not been provided with the right bags from the council yet. And so they just say, well, we'll just take that to the temple and God can, God can deal with it because we don't want it. It's, it's rubbish. It serves no purpose for us anymore. He'll be pleased to accept it. They give God their dregs, and we've seen that in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now, as we come to chapter 3, it's what they won't give to God. It's what they withhold from God that becomes the issue. They won't give to God their tithes and offerings. So, under the Mosaic law, the people of God were to give a tenth of their income to the temple or to the, the, the priests and Levites who worked in the temple. And that leads us into a debate, which I'm going to neatly sidestep. There is a, a, a long debate in the church as to whether um, members of the body of Christ, believers in Jesus, should give 10% of their income, uh, either to the church or to the work of, of Christ. And some people say yes, that's a helpful figure. Some people say no, we see it in the old covenant, under the old uh, Mosaic Covenant, but we don't see it in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. I'm going to completely sidestep that, uh, that debate because I think we all agree on the thing that is of most importance. We all agree, surely, that the people of God, the children of God, followers of Christ, are to give sacrificially and to give generously to the cause of Christ. I'm sure we would all agree in that, whether it's 10%, whether it's 10% as a baseline figure, but we should give more than whatever conclusion we come to. We all ought to agree. It is beyond doubt that we are called to give, to give sacrificially, and to give generously to the cause of Christ. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Our constitution says members shall contribute systematically to the church's finances as the Lord has prospered them. They were withholding their tithes and their offerings from God. And so there is a, a rebuke and there is a promise. Give to God what He is owed, and the floodgates of heaven will be opened, and He will pour out His blessings upon them. That's a wonderful promise, isn't it? So, it's not that God needs their money, because <laughs> there are all these blessings which He's ready to pour out upon them. But they have to give to God what is His. They have to show with their giving how much the Lord means to them and how grateful they are to Him. It's interesting the words that God uses in verse 8. He says, you rob me. You rob me. So, they are withholding from God what is 
rightfully his. It's not theirs. That's obviously the way they were thinking. It's not theirs. It's God's. And by keeping it to themselves, they are robbing God of what is rightfully his. And I think we forget so often, don't we, that actually everything we have ultimately is God's. It's a gift from God's good and gracious hand. You say, oh no, Ross, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I've worked hard. I've worked hard to get where I am in life. I've worked hard for every penny that I have earned. It's mine. Well, no, it's God's. It's God's. Not just the 10%, but the other 90% is God's. We are only ever stewards. Even the stuff that we earn, we earn because God has given us the body and the mind and the opportunities that we have had to work to earn. Ultimately, it's all gift. Ultimately, it's all God's. And we ought to think of everything, not just the money, but all the stuff that we have as God's. And He has given it into our hands for a time to be good and faithful stewards. So how are you stewarding the stuff that God has given to you? Are you stewarding it well and wisely? Of course, that's true for what we have, but it's also true for what we are, who we are. It's true of our lives. Even our lives are are gifts. We didn't earn our existence, did we? We didn't earn our existence. And every moment that the Lord gives to us is a gift, and we ought to treat it as such. Even if we eat healthily and we exercise regularly, every breath in our lungs, every beat of our hearts, it's all gift. So I thought I had a fairly healthy lifestyle till, you know, Palm Sunday or the day before Palm Sunday 2011. And then suddenly I, I was reminded in no uncertain terms that this life is a gift and we do not know how, how long it will be. So we ought to be careful to make sure we steward our lives faithfully and wisely and well. And I, I now have four monthly reminders that my life is a gift and I don't know how long it will be. And that's, a good th- that's actually a very healthy thing. A reminder that we don't have this opportunity forever. Steward your life wisely and well for the glory of the God who has been so good to you. Give Him your best. Give Him your all. Serve Him wholeheartedly. Why? Because He has given us His best. He has given us His all. He withheld nothing from us when He came to us in Christ Jesus. He gave us the best gift He could give, the gift of His one and only Son. He could not have given us more when He gave Jesus. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have 
eternal life. Give him your best because it's his anyway. Give him your best because he has loved you and in love he has given his best to you so that you can know life lived in that love as a child of God forever. Give him your best because it is in serving God wholeheartedly that we find true and lasting joy. You have said, verse 14, it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements? How wrong they were. It's anything but futile to serve God. It's futile ultimately to serve anything in place of God, but it's not futile to serve God. It's not futile to trust and to love and to serve and to honor God. What do we gain? Everything. We gain everything by giving our lives to God. It is in losing our lives that we find them, says Jesus. It's never futile to spend yourself in the service of Christ Jesus. He gives His people this wonderful promise, test me in this, see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it, that then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land. Give to God what is His, and He will bless you richly. I've often heard it said, we cannot outgive God. And it's, uh, it's true. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, so we're not doing this to earn God's favor, we're not doing this to climb up a ladder to God. We've got no chance of climbing up a ladder to God. We do this because we remember that Jesus has come down to us in love. God has come down to us in Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. He has given us Jesus. He has loved us, and He will continue to bless us as we love and as we trust and as we serve Him. Return to me, and I will return to you, said the Lord in love to His people all those years ago. And He has not changed. Draw near to him wholeheartedly, and he will draw near to you. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing our closing hymn, Just As I Am.